I used to be a boy scout. I loved scouting. I loved the adventure. I got opportunities to go sailing and canoeing and rock climbing and potholing and so much more. And of course, a lot of this took place while we were away camping together. Now, one of the highlights of every scout camp was the campfire in the evening. We would sit around the flames, toasting bread and singing songs late into the night. Now, as it happens, there is only one of those campfire songs that I still remember. And I thought I would share it with you tonight. It's called, Oh, You'll Never Get to Heaven. And it goes something like this. Oh, you'll never get to heaven in a baked bean tin. Because a baked bean tin has got baked beans in. Oh, you'll never get to heaven in a baked bean tin. Because a baked bean tin's got baked beans in. I ain't going to agree, I eat my Lord no more. I ain't going to drink, smoke, swear. I ain't going to wear no underwear. I ain't going to agree, I eat my Lord no more. Oh, you never get to heaven in a jumbo jet. Because the Lord ain't built no runways yet. Oh, you're never going to have it in a jumbo jet. And so on, so on, so on, so on. And it goes on. There was a leader called Amanda who had a battered old car. Well, you'll never get to heaven in Amanda's car because Amanda's car won't get that far. You can see the sort of childhood that I had. Now, I don't know why this is the one campfire song that I remember from 25 years ago, but it mysteriously popped into my head this week as I was reflecting on this passage. And when I think about it now, I have no idea why the leader at the time thought this was a good song for the 30 scouts or so to be singing. Our scout troop was connected with a church. It was part of the church's outreach to the young lads. But it's fair to say that the theology of that song is pretty ropey. What did we learn from those lyrics? Well, first of all, that heaven is very far away and very hard to get to. Secondly, with the inability of jumbo jets and baked bean tins to get us there, we better rely on good behaviour instead. If we would just refrain from drinking and smoking and swearing, and if we had the moral chastity to wear underpants every day, God would not be grieved by us and would let us in. The song is a product of that universal myth that if we just do enough good deeds, we will please God and he will allow us into heaven. It is a relic of the age where generations of Christians tried to scare people into the kingdom of God and make them good moral citizens at the same time. And I hope that I don't need to tell you that this does not work. We will never be able to do enough good deeds to enter heaven. There is only one way that we will get there, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what our passage is about this evening. And I've started in a light-hearted way to ease us into this topic, but from here on in, our reflections will be serious indeed. Because there really is nothing more important than this. 
We have been reading John's Gospel for quite a while now. And three times in recent chapters, we have read of Jesus being deeply troubled. Do you remember them? He was deeply troubled as he stood at Lazarus' tomb in chapter 11. He was deeply troubled as he contemplated the cross in chapter 12. He was deeply troubled as he announced the upcoming betrayal by Judas in chapter 13. And in these moments, we've seen Jesus racked with grief and turmoil and angst and anxiety. He has been in considerable emotional distress, and it's been poignant for us to recognise it. But now, as chapter 14 begins, it is the disciples' turn to have troubled hearts. Jesus' opening words to his friends were, Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. When Jesus feels that he needs to say that, it is a sure sign to us that the disciples were deeply troubled indeed. And over the last few paragraphs of this gospel, we have witnessed the disciples becoming increasingly distraught. A dark foreboding is coming over them. They have followed Jesus for three long years now. They have given up everything to be by his side. Slowly they have come to believe that he is the Messiah, the one who would save Israel. And they have travelled up and down the land, proudly announcing him as such, even in the face of mockery and rejection. But suddenly, in these last few days, Jesus has made it plain to them that he has entered Jerusalem for the final time. He has been speaking about death. And consequently, by the start of this chapter, the disciples know that there are some great challenges on the way. Jesus is leaving them. Even Peter, one of the strongest of them, will soon deny him. And after this, they're going to be tasked with carrying on Jesus' work in his absence. Just sense the the potent mix of emotions that must have been swirling around their hearts and minds. There would have been the great fear of the unknown. What's coming? Grief at losing their friend and master. Disillusionment as they struggled to understand who Jesus was and how he would achieve his ends if it was indeed true that he was about to die. Maybe one or two of them felt a little shame. But they backed the wrong horse with their life savings. They definitely felt weak and vulnerable at the thought of working on without him. There is no doubt these disciples are now deeply worried. They are deeply troubled. They had so many questions spoken and unspoken. And wonderfully in his great love for them, Jesus realizes this. So here in his farewell teaching, he gently begins to provide them with some of the answers that they need. Ultimately, the answer to their trouble is to trust. They trusted the God of Israel all their lives. Now they are to trust Jesus, his son. They are to hold on and stay strong for his imminent departure will achieve a great purpose. 
Jesus now announces that in his leaving, he'll be working on his friend's behalf. Indeed, he is going somewhere to prepare a place for them. This is verses 2 and 3. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. I wonder what you visualize when you think of these verses. I'm sure you've heard them before at funerals, if nowhere else. Perhaps your mind's eye is still influenced by the old King James translation of them. In my father's house are many mansions. Perhaps you you picture an enormous palatial looking house up in the sky somewhere. There is definitely the sense of spaciousness here. A house big enough that it has capacity for all. But if size is all we think about, we might lose the sense of intimacy that Jesus is really promising here. The only other time that Jesus spoke of his father's house was when he was speaking in the temple in Jerusalem. Do you remember? He was clearing out the money changers in chapter 2. And he commanded them, get these dogs out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Now, what was it that was so important to the Jews about the temple? It was that the temple was the one place where God promised to be present in a special way with his people. The temple was the place where heaven and earth met together. It was a holy space, a sacred space, a place of intimate fellowship and communication, prayer and worship between humanity and God. And this is what Jesus is really getting at with this metaphor of the Father's house. He is about to leave his disciples to prepare the way for humanity to dwell fully with God. What was it that he said? I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. In a week's time, I'm going to the mod. I'm going to be staying in a large hotel. But on that trip, I will room with one choir member in particular. I will share their space. I will be in close contact with them. I will abide with that one member above all. This is the sense of rooming in these verses. For all eternity, we are going to room with Jesus. We are going to remain with him. We're going to abide with him. We're going to dwell in his presence and in the presence of his Father forevermore. The disciples have known real intimacy with Jesus over the past three years. They've eaten with him. They've slept with him. They've spent every hour of the day with him. From now on, death will not interrupt that intimacy. Rather, it will fulfill and deepen and extend it. 
Of course, there is so much that we don't know about our heavenly future, so much that is simply beyond our full grasp and description. But the very best bit of eternity we can understand, that we will live within the welcome and the hospitality of God. We will know his full and perfect presence without end. We will be with him. Now notice that Jesus does not just make a promise about reserving a place for us in our father's house. He also said that he was going to make a way for us to be there with him. He was going to guarantee that we get there. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Do you remember last week when Peter vowed to follow Jesus wherever he went? And Jesus had to reply on that occasion, well, actually, no, Peter, you're not going to be able to follow me this time. And that statement must have created real unease amongst the disciples. They followed him everywhere up to now. But Jesus now acts to counter that unease. Yes, he is departing them. He is leaving. He's going to prepare another place. But then he's going to come back. And he's going to personally escort them there. In other words, he's not going to forget them while he's away. He's not going to abandon them. He is going to ensure that they make the journey by traveling by their side. This is a beautiful and a comforting image. It's a foretelling of the work of the Holy Spirit. And its fulfillment will be found most of all in the second coming of Jesus. Of course, in the moment, the disciples wouldn't have been able to compute all of that. But they'd have been able to pick up that Jesus was reassuring them. Now, it's surely a sign of just how troubled the disciples were that despite the reassurance that Jesus has just given, they still want more clarification. Jesus has been speaking of his death and they still cannot understand why it need be that way. They just cannot comprehend that Jesus will return to his father via the cross. So at this point, Thomas speaks up and asks a further question. Jesus has asserted that they know the way to the place that he is going. Thomas responds, they don't know where he's going, so how can they possibly know the way? And to this question, Jesus answers with some incredibly important words. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Imagine for a moment the house that I grew up in as a child. One day, my father comes home from work and he finds another young lad going through the fridge in the kitchen. My dad stops and asks the lad rather indignantly, Who are you? What are you doing in my house? My dad is about to ask him to leave when he suddenly replies, I'm a friend of Andrew. I I'm with him. He invited me round after school. And immediately my father relaxes. That's all right then. Help yourself. The cheesecake's on the second shelf. When I was a child, my friends came into my father's house 
and were made welcome there because they had a relationship with me. If they hadn't, they would have been burglars. And so too, we can enter the Father's house of glory. We can enter his intimate presence solely because we have a relationship with his son. With Jesus. Now Jesus' statement here is so famous that we can begin to take it for granted. So to make sure that we don't, I want to take each of these three terms that he uses one by one. First of all, Jesus said, I am the name of God. I am the way. In the context of this passage, all the emphasis is found here. Access to the Father's presence is through Jesus and no other. He is the only person that can lead us there. Now, now why is that the case? Well, it's because Jesus is the only one who can deal with our sin. For us to be forgiven, a perfect life had to be exchanged for our imperfect ones. And Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is the only human being who has ever lived a perfect life on earth. So only he could make this transaction. And he did it, of course, on the cross. Jesus is also the unique way to God because he is the only one who has broken away through death. He is the only one who has died and risen again. The Bible tells us that God is so holy, so infinite, so majestic, so set apart from us as human beings that only God can lead us to himself. Jesus, as God's son, has the unique capacity to do this. He is the way, the only way. Secondly, Jesus declares himself to be the truth. He is claiming here to be the authoritative revealer of God. Verse 7. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. This is a big statement. So Philip this time gives a follow up remark in verse 8. Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And through these words, Philip expresses the longing that is found deep in the heart of all human beings to see and know the living God. The Bible says that we are incomplete without God in our lives. We're, we're restless, we're dissatisfied. We'll only be in his presence that our longings are fulfilled. And Jesus uses the next verses, verses 9 to 11, to express to Philip and the other disciples that he has already revealed the Father to them. Over the last three years, Jesus has spoken the word of God because he heard the Father speak words to him and he has obediently passed them on. Over the last three years, Jesus has demonstrated the actions of God because he watched his Father at work and he has chosen to copy it. But suddenly, now Jesus goes further. Jesus reveals the Father to human beings because Jesus is God himself. The Father is present in him and he in 
the Father. This is the great theological truth that John has been leading to throughout the whole gospel. This is the pinnacle. This is the high point. This is the climax. We've had hints up to now. In the prologue, we were told that Jesus was the word of God, who was with God and was was God in the beginning. In chapter 10, we heard Jesus say that I and the Father are one. But now it is clear for all to hear and understand. Jesus is God in fully human form. And as such, he is both the way to God and he is the goal of that journey. He is God himself. He is the one in whom God can be found. And in verse 11, Jesus states that this incredible truth will soon be able to be tested to the full. His miracles and teaching have already demonstrated it in part, but very soon now he will die. And three days later, he will rise again. And on that first Easter Sunday, all the evidence that human beings need will have been given forevermore. And that is what he means when he says, believe me when I say I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. One Bible commentator wrote this in reflection to that announcement. All truth is God's truth and all life is God's life. But God's truth and God's life are incarnate in Christ. I hope, I hope we can get this. We believe that there is one God, one creator and ruler of the cosmos. And we believe that this one God acted decisively in history to save humanity and rescue the world from corruption and decay. And we believe that he did it in the person of Jesus, who literally walked this earth and died on the cross and rose again. We believe this is fact. We believe this is objective truth. Unshakable certainty. And as a result we read in Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. This is the truth because Jesus is the truth he is truly God and finally Jesus declared himself to be the life that is a mistake of course Jesus is speaking about eternal life here those who follow him will be the ones given eternal life beyond the grave. Remember the other I am saying that we had back in chapter 11. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. But there is also something more going on here. When Jesus describes himself as the life... He is also talking about the quality of life that we are to live. 
If Jesus is God in fully human form, as we have just said the truth is, then he sets us the ultimate example on how to live our lives. Now I have to say that the world at large does not like the verse that we are looking at tonight. In their eyes it is far too exclusive. In fact it's utterly exclusive, isn't it? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. How dare we say that in our age of tolerance. And Christians are regularly accused of arrogance when we dismiss that commonly held notion that all religions are intrinsically the same. They're not. No one comes to the Father except through me. But although Christians have been arrogant at times when sharing this message, the same cannot be said when we look back at the life of Jesus. This is the Jesus who washed people's feet and told us to copy him. This is the Jesus who laid down his life for the sheep, even those from other sheepfolds. This is the Jesus who wept at the grave of a friend and cared for the sick and embraced the outcast and had compassion on the foreigner and the widow. Jesus loved all people. And he demonstrated that with his life. So we today, as followers of Jesus, are to go on expressing this truth. We are to declare that he is the only way to the Father. But we are to do it with the same humble and sacrificial love that Jesus lived his life with. He is the way, the truth, and the life. We're going to finish there for today. We will pick up more next week. But if nothing more, I hope we are all now clear about the way to heaven. It is not by baked bean tin or jumbo jet. It is not by ceasing to smoke and swear and trying to do good instead. The only way to God is through Jesus. Our passage began by recognising the troubled hearts of the disciples. I wonder where we are troubled at this time. Who are we grieving the loss of? Where do we fail to see the way ahead or fear an unknown future? Let us turn to trust in Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. In him is the fullness of God, and through him we will find ourselves in the presence of God forevermore. May we live in gratitude for that promise. May we seek to live like him, and share this good news with everyone that we meet.